0: You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Romans chapter 15, take a look at verse 4. Verses 4 through 6 says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures... We might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We went over this several Sundays ago, and again, you can go to the website of the podcast to check that up. Uh, But suffice it to say this as Paul says, Everything that was written in the former days, and so at the time of Paul writing the Romans, everything that was written was the Old Testament. That's what was written. All of that was for the purpose of encouragement and endurance, and and what we can say and know about God through all of his teaching, everything that he did through his people, the nation of Israel, the prophets, the giving of the law. Even his silence for a 500-year period of time before Jesus came, everything was for the purpose of our endurance and our encouragement. And not by our own strength do those things happen. Our endurance to keep walking the walk of faith or our encouragement to stay uh, uh, engaged and have the zeal, the joy of the Lord, those things. We receive those those things through God's word. And through his indwelling spirit. That's how we're encouraged. That's how we endure in walking with the Lord. Is through God's word and through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. I'll talk about it in a little bit. But um, as we, we just finished I believe Deuteronomy this morning in the Read Scripture app. We finished up Deuteronomy. The last several chapters of Deuteronomy are pretty brutal. You read the Old Testament. And I've said this before. If you were just to read the Old Testament as a narrative. Just as a story. Not as broken up into chapters and verses with study points, all those kinds of things, but you just read it as a story, man, if you have no other knowledge or no other perspective on who God is here, the overarching theme of scripture, what that is pointing towards Jesus, it's a hard story to read. There's a lot of like violence in the Old Testament. There's a lot of intensity from this God towards his people, and so it's hard to perhaps take in unless you have the larger framework of who God is and what his purpose is for all of his creation. So God is the God of endurance and the God of encouragement for the purpose of our eternal hope. And because of that, we are called, and Paul does this frequently in these last several chapters again and again, he calls the church to live in harmony or in unity with one another because of Jesus Christ. We are to be a people who are unified in our mission, and in our life together. And that's an important theme that Paul continues to come back to throughout these last several chapters. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this, Therefore, welcome one another. Anytime you have the word therefore in your study, you have to acknowledge, hey, what was right before this verse? What preceded the word therefore? Paul was just talking about this unity that is supposed to be in this body of Christ, right? This harmony that we're supposed to have one another with one another and so he says therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God and that leads to the question how does Christ welcome us how is it that Jesus welcomes us into his kingdom and there's multiple studies we could do on this i'm going to take one avenue here but you can also take note of the fact that Jesus welcomes us into his kingdom By way of sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed his life so that we could have entrance into his family, into his kingdom, and take possession of the riches of God's kingdom. And so that's one way that when we look at it in terms of our unity in the church, how are we to welcome one another? It goes hand in hand with what Paul has been teaching about the weaker brother, right? Not... Not doing anything that would stumble somebody who's weaker in their faith than we are. And so we are to welcome one another with sacrifice in the way that Jesus welcomes us. We sacrifice the thing that we want for the good of another brother or sister in the faith. But the other way that I want you to see this in terms of how does Jesus welcome us in a very eternal and practical sense. Jesus rises and welcomes us into his kingdom with arms wide open. This is an image that we need to have of Jesus, that Jesus is, is God who is the God who welcomes us. Now, throughout the New Testament, prophetically, when there's a vision about Jesus or of Jesus in heaven, you see it in the book of Revelation, and, and you see it in other places where anytime you see Jesus in heaven, it's in reference to him being seated in the seat of honor and power next to the Father, seated at the right hand of God. That's the seat of power and authority in God's kingdom, and it's reserved for Jesus alone, except that there's one specific scene in the book of Acts that shows Jesus in heaven in a different posture, and it's that story about Stephen, who was the first martyr of the of the Christian church. They weren't even called Christians back then. They were just referred to as... The way, that's what they were referred to. And Stephen stood before the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he recounted the history of Israel and how the the, the Jews should have known who Jesus was. Mm -hmm. Simply by the prophecies of the Old Testament, they should have known who Jesus was. And he accuses them and charges them with killing God, with murdering the Messiah. And it says in in Acts chapter 7, verse 55 and 56, that they were so angry when they heard this testimony of Stephen that they ground their teeth at him and they rushed at him. And here's what it says they began to to throw stones at him and, and, and cast him out of the city and throw stones at him. And it says in verses 55 and 56, Acts 7, 55 and 56, but he, meaning Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus, mark this, standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is a different posture for Jesus. And as they are stoning him, as Stephen is being rocks thrown at him so that he would die, he copies Jesus when Jesus was on the cross and says, Father, forgive them. And he says, Lord, receive my spirit in the same way that Jesus said on the cross. So the image that we see of Jesus in this, one of his beloved children being martyred, being killed for having the testimony of Jesus, Jesus stands and the idea here is that he's welcoming Stephen into his kingdom. Now, why this is important for us is because what Paul says in Romans 15 is, therefore, because we're supposed to have this unity in the church, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is how we're supposed to welcome one another. This idea of arms wide open, standing and greeting one another, right? Later on, Paul's going to say something about greeting one another with a holy kiss. Now, most, most modern scholars and stuff like that want to write that off to being cultural, right? And, and it was. It was cultural at that time. But there's a lot of cultures that still do that today. They greet one another in a way that indicates intimacy and closeness. Now, we who are Americans and cold and cut off emotionally from most things like to just simply shake hands. And that's about like if we hug someone, that's like, whoa, that's really, really, really like too close for comfort. And yet this is what the indication is that Paul's talking about in terms of how we're supposed to greet one another. Not that we're, we're being inappropriate or any of those kinds of things, but that we're supposed to have this welcoming attitude. And I talked about it a little bit on Sunday Again, I'll, I'll say that a couple of times. You can go back and listen to that now, which is awesome. But we want to be a people who reflect what the scripture says. We want to be a people where we make space for, where there is room for in the fellowship of the church, the, the type of people that Paul talks about at the end of the letter, at the end of Romans. Men, women, married, single, young, old, healthy, broken, weak strong mature in the faith young in the faith we desire we should be a people who are arms wide open welcoming everyone so that we can point them to Jesus to bring them to the Lord that's what we have a desire to do and so we should have we should just have this spirit of openness and welcome and and be cautious not to have an eye of suspicion when we see someone new, especially if they look different than we do, especially if they have perhaps practiced their faith in a tradition that is different than the one that we're used to or comfortable with. And we shouldn't be casting an eye toward people ready to point out their weaknesses in their faith or their misunderstandings of doctrine too often that attitude has come into the church and it's been been defended under the category of discernment. And I, I put air quotes on that one for a reason. Because it's not discernment, it's judgment. Now, is there godly discernment where we go, hey, someone's teaching doctrine that's not, that doesn't line up with scripture? Absolutely. But in terms of welcoming people and bringing people into the church and having them become a part of the fellowship, we need to be so cautious how we respond to people and and truly trust that God's Holy Spirit who indwells his believers, all who are a part of the body of Christ, will give us that discernment when it's needed, that we'll be able to ferret out a wolf among the flock based on what someone is teaching, based on how they're living, all of those kinds of things. But up until that point, we need to have an attitude and a heart just like Jesus of arms wide open welcoming people. There's two There's two old sayings that sort of resonate with me and kind of stick around with me when I think about um, the gospel and when I think about people becoming a part of the church. The first is this, you can't clean a fish before you catch him. You can't clean a fish before you catch him. The whole idea of someone who's a non-believer, someone who's living a life of sin, right, coming into the church, oftentimes what happens is, is that people who are used to church life and what what you should look like as a Christian, they'll see someone who's a non-believer, and before that person has ever had a life-changing, heart-changing experience of knowing Jesus, they're trying to work on cleaning them up and making sure that they act and talk and look right before they've ever had this life-changing moment of like, oh my goodness, I get it, I'm a sinner, I need to be forgiven of my sin, God needs to put a new heart in me so that I can desire to love him. Like before that ever occurs, too often the church is trying to clean people up and get them to look a certain way. The other other saying that sort of sticks with me is how you catch them is how you keep them. The way that you attract people to Jesus, the way that you attract people to church, the way you try and get people to be a part of Jesus' church is how you're going to have to keep them. So if your whole thing is to get them to come to church by getting them to act right, look right, talk right, and go through a checklist of this is what a Christian looks like, then that's what you have to maintain. You have to maintain those behaviors, and when that becomes the norm is maintaining behaviors, we lose out on that element of grace that says, this is going to be messy. I'm going to mess up along the way, and things are not always going to look perfect and clean and nice. Therefore, we worship God for the grace that he gives us in those moments that when we fall, we get back up again. I want you to think real quick about the Great Commission back in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verse 17. Jesus has been crucified. He's resurrected. And there in the garden, the garden tomb, the stone's been rolled away. He's come out, and the women have gone to... to, to uh, go uh, tell the men that the tomb is empty, right? And Jesus meets the Marys, the two Marys, along the way. And they fall down and they worship him. And then he tells the the women, hey, go tell the disciples, go tell the other guys to meet me up in the Galilee. Head back up north and meet me in the Galilee. And so the guys listen to the girls and they head up (coughs) and they go meet Jesus. And they see Jesus. And what happens, the scripture says that some worshipped him, right? They saw Jesus and they worshipped him. And it says, but others doubted. Now this is Jesus who they have walked with and followed along with, listened to his teachings, watch him be crucified, watch him be put into the tomb. And now here he is standing in front of them. And yet there were those, the scripture says, that doubted. Now I want you to take note of what happens in Matthew 28, verse 17. They worshipped him. But some doubted. Pay attention to what Jesus' response is in light of this doubt. Jesus does not rebuke them. Jesus does not get frustrated with them or angry that they haven't somehow picked up on what's going on yet. It says that he came to them. They worshiped, some doubted, and then it says that he came to them. Jesus moved toward his own disciples, his followers, the ones who were doubting. He didn't move away from them. He didn't get angry. He didn't get frustrated. Those that were doubting and struggling with this whole thing of just like trying to make heads or tails about like, we saw him die. He went into the tomb and now here he is. Like, what does all this mean? The ones that were struggling with that, Jesus moves toward them and then he makes the statement That ends all other arguments about his resurrection and about what their purpose in life is and all of those things. Jesus says to them that all authority in heaven and earth, including things like death, have been given to him now. That because Jesus raised up from the dead, he now has all authority over everything in heaven and everything on earth. Including giving us our instructions, our life mission and marching orders, which is to say we're to go out and Jesus says make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've said. That's what Jesus says our mission is now. He has all authority to do those things. So at the end of the day, at the end of that thought and idea, it's this, that we are to be people like Jesus who move toward people who have doubts, who move toward people who are hurting, toward people who are struggling. That's our move as Jesus followers, is to move toward those people, not away from them because of their doubts, because of the way they look, because of what they're struggling with. In fact, this thought continues as Paul, in Romans 15, verse 8, says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his peoples. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. All of these prophecies of the Old Testament at the time, the the Jews to consider that a Gentile would be worshipping the same God that would be brought into the same place of worship and praise to the Lord was, was confusing and unheard of unless that Gentile person went through purification rites to convert to being a Jew, becoming a part of the nation of Israel. They couldn't surmise, they couldn't see how Gentiles on their own would be able to worship God. And yet here we have the fulfillment of that prophecy that Paul himself is the one that was sent to go to the Gentiles to preach the gospel so that even they, who were far off from God, the Gentiles were not not God's chosen people in any way, they were far off, and yet here they are brought in to be able to worship Jesus Just like the Jews were able to worship God and should have known that they were supposed to be worshiping Jesus. The fulfillment of these prophecies for us, because we all were those Gentiles, far away from God. These prophecies and the fulfillment of of these prophecies in Jesus should cause us to rejoice. They should cause us to rejoice because, like Paul had described earlier, we were the wild shoots. We were the ones that had to be grafted into the vine of Jesus. We weren't there originally like the nation of Israel was. We were grafted in. And so we should be so thankful and so into worshiping God for saving us because we didn't have that advantage to start out with. We were far away from Him. And so, again, the application for us is that we need to welcome those who seem far off from God, those who seem to be at odds with what we believe. Because before Jesus grabbed us and changed our hearts, renewed our hearts, we're the ones who were far away. We're the ones who thought differently, who who were worshipping worldly things, idols, rather than worshipping God in truth. And so that should be a conviction and an instruction for us as Christians, if we call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, that we should be sharing that same word of truth, that we should be sharing this gospel of of salvation, of the love of God through Jesus with all of creation. If we're not, then we're sort of denying our own salvation. Like we're not really being thankful for what we experience. If we're just sort of hoarding it to ourselves and going, thankful I'm saved, good luck the rest of you. That's, that's that's, That's not the way that we're supposed to move through life. We're supposed to be people that are being engaging and desiring people to hear about jesus we really really have to protect ourselves as we grow as a group of people who are the church who are gathering together to pursue that ministry that god has called us to that jesus has commissioned us for we have to be a group of people that protect ourselves against what can happen when a group of people specifically in the church start to define themselves by what they're against rather than what they're for, especially if they're calling themselves Christians. And we see this happening a lot. It is, is people defining themselves by what they're against rather than what they're for, like the Pharisees. The Pharisees in the New Testament, they had good intention. They started off in a good place to say they wanted to fulfill the law. They wanted to do the law perfectly. And what ended up happening was rather than affirming the heart and the message of the law, which was to worship God alone, they simply became people who were checking off the list of people who were doing things wrong and trying to keep a record of how people were doing things wrong. So they became known for what they were against rather than what they were for. And that can happen in our churches, it just does. It's become a part of our culture, unfortunately, that that people become closed off. And what happens when you become closed off, I've used this language before and it's offended people, I don't mean to be offensive by this, but what happens when you become known as a group of people who are against things, not for things, like you're against certain behaviors and politics and ideas, and, and you're not known for simply being for Jesus and for God's grace, then you begin to be a spiritual country club where you, where if you want to become a part of the group, if you want to come in and be part of that group, then you have to pay your dues. You have to walk right. You have to talk right. You have to look right. You have to pay your dues to be a part of that group. Have the same opinions as everybody else. Don't say anything different that might rock the boat But the reality is, is if that we're truly about the gospel, the truth of Jesus's death and resurrection, right? To give us life through the the confession and repentance of our sins. And the truth is, is we're going to be welcoming people into our fellowship and not just our fellowship, but into our lives who need to hear this gospel, regardless of how far from the Lord they seem, regardless how messy that looks. Because here's the point. Here's the point of sharing the gospel with someone, and this is this is where we have to really dial down and discipline ourselves in this. The point of sharing the gospel with someone, the, the point of Bible teaching and preaching, is not just to take notes and, and become head have head knowledge of scripture. It's to help people become more like Jesus, not more like us. Okay? While we are Christians, and yes, Paul would say this, and Jesus would say this rightfully, imitate me as I imitate Christ is what Paul would say. Jesus would say, be holy even as I am holy. Listen, the idea of teaching scripture, the idea of discipleship, helping people follow after Jesus is to look more like Jesus, not look more like us. God forbid, I don't want anybody to look like me as a follower of Christ. I want them to look like Jesus. But here's also the beauty of that is this, in our own lives, in our own walking with the Lord and growing in grace for ourselves, we have the freedom of understanding that I don't have to look like anybody else in the church. I get to be me, but me becoming more like Jesus, right? There's that phrase now that everybody talks about, you know, they say, hey, you do you, right? Whatever's good, you do you. Don't be like anybody else. You do you. It's sort of true. You get to be you with your personality, your voice, your talents, your weaknesses, all of those things. You get to be you. But because of the gospel, you get to be you becoming more like Jesus. So as we share that message of Jesus with people, it's not to make them look like the other people in our church. Our church shouldn't all just be carbon copies of each other. You get to be you, your own distinct personality, how God created you, just becoming more like Jesus along the way. Paul's prayer in verse 13 is one that we can pray regularly for ourselves and for our fellowship. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Not only is God a God of endurance and encouragement, but God is a God of hope. So that when things are dark, when things are hard, when things look look bad for us, God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, fills us with hope. Now, verses 14 through 16, we covered a couple Sundays ago. You can go take a look at that uh, via the podcast as well. I'll say that several times tonight. Uh, But if you take a look at verse 17, it says this. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, Paul says. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. I want you to take note of of several things here in this little section of scripture. The first thing I want you to take note of is Paul's humility In giving God credit for all the work that was done by his hands. Paul is not being arrogant in verse 17. When he says that in Christ Jesus then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Because he makes the disclaimer in Christ Jesus. He's not saying hey look at all the churches I've started. Look at all the people who've become Christians because of my preaching. He says in Christ Jesus I have have reason to be proud of my work for God. Meaning I've fulfilled the job that God has given me to do by the grace that He's given me through Jesus Christ. And then look at what He says in verse 18 I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Paul acknowledges he did a bunch of work. He's the one who studied the scriptures, he's the one who preached, he's the one who went out and almost died a bunch of times in the ocean or getting beat or being in prison, all of those things. But Paul gives God, very specifically Jesus, credit for all the work that was done by his hands. I also want you to take note in this small section of Paul's never-ending desire to share the gospel. It's a model for us. He says in verse 20, And thus I make it my ambition. That's like, this is my drive. This is the reason I wake up in the morning. This is what I do in life. It's my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul had a never-ending desire to share the gospel. It's what motivated him. It was his ambition in life. Man, I pray to have that same ambition and that same goal in everything that I put my hands to. Whatever work I'm doing, whatever relationship I'm in, that it is about Sharing the gospel, that God would open up the doors to make that abundantly clear how and when to share the gospel with people. And the final thing that Paul, I want you to take note of in Paul is verse 21, as I just read, is Paul's vision to fulfill the Great Commission. The Great Commission of Jesus was to go out into all of the world, not just specific areas, but everywhere, to every person, that every creature would hear of the good news of Jesus. And so Paul's desire and his vision was to fulfill that. By going to those who have never heard and never seen. Oftentimes, I think in America we we think that the, that the United States of America is so like gospel saturated that we feel like there's no longer mission fields in our own backyard. But it's just not the truth. There are so many people who have just never heard of Jesus. We live in an in an age right now where because of secularization and because we are now actually as a culture. Post-Christian, meaning there are generations of people alive now, younger people, who have never been to church, who have no religious orientation in their life at all. They are truly secular, meaning their parents birthed them and raised them without any reference to a deity of any kind. We live in that age right now, which means that in our own backyards, our neighbors The people we interact with at the grocery store, the gas station, at school, at work. There are just innumerable people who have no understanding at all of who the God of the Bible is. Of who Jesus is or why they should believe in him. And so we have a mission field that's available for us. It's worldwide. It's global. But for those of us who haven't been called to go overseas to other cultures or or places to share that gospel... We have a mission field in our own lives every single day. There are people who do not know the gospel. And so Paul's vision of seeing the Great Commission fulfilled is the same vision that we should have, to have our eyes open to the fact that there are people everywhere who do not know Jesus yet. If you take a look at verse 22, Paul says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, meaning his work of the gospel in all the various places that he's gone on his missionary journeys. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, meaning that the gospel has reached those regions and there are churches there, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints." For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, meaning the Christians in Jerusalem were the ones who were formerly Jews. They were the ones who who initially received the promise of salvation from God through the Messiah. And so those other churches, Macedonia and Achaia, Those were Gentiles who had been grafted into that vine and they received that spiritual blessing because of the Jews, these ones specifically who were at Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought able to be of service to them in material blessings. Paul's talking very specifically about how the church shared in all things. The church was not not, uh, divided in terms of separate congregations and denominations. We'll hear more about that in 1 Corinthians as we jump into that letter. But the church was unified at this place. There was relationship between churches. Jerusalem was connected to Macedonia. Macedonia was connected to Achaia, who was connected to Ephesus. And when one group of people, there was people who were struggling or who were in poverty and who needed resources, the other churches would go, our brothers and sisters, who we may not even know by name, but we know they're a part of the church, have need. They would simply just send aid to one another. And they would just share in those things. And this is what's going on here. And So verse 28 says, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul is looking forward to come and fellowshipping with these people. We should have that same desire. I'm struck Recently, just because of the circumstances of which we find ourselves here in this church and just in life in general, I'm struck that throughout the scripture, especially the New Testament, there is a command, there is a, uh, there is a necessity for the church to be unified. When we jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's going to talk about it there, that there would be no divisions in the church. That while we agree on doctrine, we agree on salvation, we agree on, the, on who Jesus is, that if those things be true, that we are to be unified in the church. That there be no sense of competition between gatherings of Christians, but rather unity and like-mindedness and support and encouragement. We are missing that in our community. There is separation between churches and it need not be so according to the scripture. Take a look at verse 30. Paul ends this section with a prayer, with an invocation. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That was, I apologize, that wasn't a prayer of Paul. He is calling for prayer. He's calling for prayer throughout the church. Prayer is the most powerful tool we have personally in the edification of other believers. Simply laying them before the Lord. And I ended our time last week and talked about how I had had just an experience recently sitting here in this chair. Where it was late and I was just, just contemplating like, Lord, how do I even pray for people like like everybody has needs there's all kinds of things and it's hard to keep track of what everybody's struggles are and their hurts and their relationships that they're working through and all those kinds of things and it was just placed upon my heart just to just to literally speak their name out and lay that person before the lord spiritually so i sat there and i just went through my list looked through my phone and just went lord this person and i and i talked about it last week how our friend daniel delma from burkina faso africa when he was here visiting years ago We were in a time of prayer uh, as a group of elders and pastors with him. And the way that he would pray was so encouraging and so engaging. And he would pray. He would say, Lord, I recommend this person to you. And then he would pray for them, whatever the prayer was. I love that idea. That you just lay a person's name out there and and just go, Lord, consider this person. Right? Like Job. Like Job. Consider your servant Job. We talked about that. Right? And, and, And there's just something simple but profound about that, saying, Lord, I don't have answers. I don't know even necessarily what the needs of this person are, but I'm compelled to lay this person before you. Consider this person. Do what's right for them. Do what's good for them. Do what will honor and glorify you in their life. Prayer is the most powerful tool that we have in in encouraging and edifying other believers in the church. Well, Romans chapter 16, as we make our way through Verses 1 through 20, we're going to skip because we talked about that on Sunday. And so you can check out the teaching and the podcast on that, verses 1 through 20. But suffice it to say, we desire to make room for all manner of people and all manner of gifts within the church. Acknowledging that there are those within our midst who have gifts from the Holy Spirit meant to be a building up and encouraging for the common good of the church It's not just me studying and sharing a Bible study. That's part of it. It's not just someone else leading out in songs. It's not just the person who contributes financially, although it is all of those things. There are other giftings, and it's one of the goals of our life as we follow after Jesus should be to look through the Scriptures and prayerfully consider, Lord, what is it that you've gifted me in? Holy Spirit, what is it you're giving me to be a blessing to the body? Encouragement. Maybe a word of prophecy. Maybe God gives you a word of knowledge for someone that that you're to go and speak to them. And it confirms something that the Lord's placed upon their heart. Maybe it's a prayer for healing and God works through you to heal someone. That That is real Jesus, Book of Acts, New Testament stuff. There's no way you can look at the Bible and go, yeah, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. That's stuff that is operative for us. And so to that end, we, we want to make space for that in our gathering as well. So we're going to get together this Sunday night right here in this room at 6 o'clock on Sunday and do what we've done before. Spend time singing out in worship, praying for one another, coming to the table of communion, but also just asking and expecting and waiting for the Holy Spirit to move in our midst. And maybe it's just like it has been before. Maybe it's a testimony of something the Lord has done. Maybe it is just a confession of sin. Maybe it's a confession of weakness or sickness and we get to come around a person and perhaps the Lord heals that person. Man, it's it's for us to pursue and experience those things in the Lord and to encourage one another in those things. And so that's what we'll do on Sunday night is just get together and seek the Lord in those things. Take a look at verse 21. Paul finishes his salutation, this is how he's ending his letter, by commending these various names and people to the church at Rome, talking about those who've been workers and helped him and given testimonies of God's work in their life. He tells them to watch out for certain kinds of people, those who cause divisions, those who create obstacles. And then he says this in verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Mark that verse 22. That may cause someone who's reading through the Bible for the first time or not understood this point to go, wait a minute. I thought Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter. Why isn't it Tertius who's given credit? Well, very simply, just to make sure that that we're, we're not confused and there's clarification on this, quite often what would happen is that the Apostle Paul would have one of his assistants, one of his guys that he would disciple and bring along with him on his journeys, transcribe his words and write them down in physical form. So whether here it was Tertius or perhaps it was Silas in another place, who would write down Paul's words as he spoke them out to the church. They would transcribe those words and then the letter would get sent off. And yet there are other times where Paul would clarify... That he was the one writing by his own hand. Like for instance in Galatians chapter 6 verse 11. Paul's making this statement that's strong and bold. He says, see with what large letters I write this to you by my own hand. There's also evidence that Paul had an issue with his eyes. He had an eye issue of some kind. And so it may have just been a very practical need that he had was to speak out his thoughts and ideas and have one of his guys transcribe those things down him well we move into verse 25 and we have what's called the doxology or or the final benediction paul's prayer of blessing upon the church and he says this now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of jesus christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Even though it's our words, even though it's our teaching, Paul says, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ even though we're the ones who, who are physically partnering with God through the Holy Spirit to do the work of the ministry, it's the Lord who strengthens and builds up and changes people's heart. It says here, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. It's an interesting thing. We're going to get right into it when we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this day, age who are doomed to pass away. Mark this, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 2, 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And what he's talking about, is he's saying that this secret wisdom that was held for years before it was revealed, this mystery that's been revealed is quite simply Jesus. Jesus is the secret of the ages. Man, when someone talks about having a secret to a better life or a secret to success or a secret to losing weight or whatever it is that you want to talk about, people use that idea of a secret, a mystery that they're going to give you an answer to. Man, truly, for those who are followers of Jesus, the secret to everything in life is just that it's Jesus. He's the secret that needs to be revealed in every aspect of our lives. When we open up and reveal Jesus to every aspect of our lives, our relationships, our finances, our health, our work, all the different things that we do on a daily basis, when we reveal Jesus to all of those areas of our life, man, things simply open up. Things simply open up and we get to experience this this knowledge that was secret to us before Jesus was revealed. Jesus is the secret of the ages. It says in verse 26, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. We just finished up Deuteronomy. And if you go back, to Deuteronomy chapters 28, 29, 30, 31. That's one of those scenes in the Old Testament that is hard for people. If they're at all doubting the goodness of God, it's one of those sections of scripture where, where you just hear about God talking about like, like increasing the curses upon people for their disobedience in fact if you if, if just mark it down Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 58 Deuteronomy 28 58 this is what God says to the nation of Israel his beloved people he says if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book that you may fear this glorious and awesome name the Lord your God then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions afflictions severe and lasting and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. This kind of language could cause someone to go, I'm not so sure about this God. Like, the God of the Old Testament seems angry. He seems angry. and He doesn't seem like a God of grace and blessing. How is it that I'm supposed to love this God? Well, here's the answer. By continuing to read. Because here's what it says in chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and, mark this, return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Man, God desires restoration. God desires healing. God has grace and mercy for people. But it's intimately connected to the obedience of his voice. For us to desire to do God's will. See, when people look at the Old Testament and they read scriptures, where they feel as though God is angry or harsh, they're missing the overarching heart and purpose. The theme of all of Scripture is that you can't have light without darkness. The darkness that we have in our sin and our brokenness—it's done away with because of God's light. The darkness of this world and the sin that is in the world can't comprehend. John chapter 1 says, the light of Jesus Christ. And so for, for God to show the darkness of sin and disobedience is important, but he doesn't leave it there. He always contrasts it with his goodness, with his mercy, with his grace, with the light of his desire for salvation. He has a desire for blessing. And the way that works is simple. It's cause and effect. If we obey God's voice, we will see blessing in our life. This is troubled in the ministry that he has. He, he knows that the end is coming soon. He says this, John 12, 27, and 28. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, and God speaks and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God's purpose is to glorify his voice. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, so, whatever, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God why Paul says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Again, I said this Sunday, but I want to repeat it here. God's identity and his purpose are inextricably linked to his glory. You cannot remove anything about God from the purpose of him receiving glory. God is love. He's identified by his character in that way. But the root and manifestation of every identifying character trait Every predestined action, every decision, every motivation of God comes from God's priority to be glorified in all the earth. And so that is also our charge and our command that whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. Paul finishes the letter to the Romans by simply saying, Amen. And anybody who's been in any of Matt's kids' classes understands that Amen means so be it. Let all these things be true.